Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year. It's Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm Roberta Radovich. Indiana Coalition for Public Education, Monroe County, is a nonpartisan group of parents, grandparents, teachers, and community members that believe in a well-funded, equitable public education, an education system that is subject to democratic oversight by the communities. We advocate through a lobbyist at the State House, the group says, and through public engagement. Recently, a group of their members and other stakeholders created a documentary entitled Indiana's Choice. The documentary examines the costs and consequences of of school choice in Indiana. It is their view that under the guise of school choice, Indiana legislators have introduced and expanded an array of policies that siphon our tax dollars out of our public schools. Those public funds are funneled into private schools and oftentimes into private hands through vouchers and into their, I'm sorry, through vouchers and into privately managed charter schools. The Indiana Coalition for Public Education, Monroe County, contends that in every legislation session since 2011, state legislators have expanded the pathways and eligibility for school vouchers, quote unquote, school choice. For example, Indiana charter schools are offered loan forgiveness. And as a result, their collective closing rates are high, which can leave students scrambling for another school and the public left wondering what happens to the funding the school received. They cite that a few years ago, two Indiana virtual charter schools defrauded the state of approximately 68 to $85 million in public taxpayer monies. However, to date, nobody has been held responsible, nor have public funds been recovered. To help discuss the mission of the Indiana Coalition for Public Education, Monroe County, and the quote-unquote Indiana Choice documentary that we'll talk a little bit more about, we have invited Dantanya Fats, a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, who is also a consultant, advocate, educator, and a principal consultant for Scriptura Strategies. Also joining us is Dr. Philip Harris, a lifelong educator with teaching experience at the elementary and university level. He and his wife, Joan Harris, published a book titled, The Myths of Standardized Test. He is currently the executive director of the Association for Educational Communications and Technology, a professional association of scholars and researchers dedicated to using technology to improve learning. Steve Hennefield, a newspaper reporter, media relations professional, and a journalism teacher also joins us tonight. He writes School Matters, a blog about education in Indiana. And finally, and certainly not least, Jenny Robinson, a Hoosier transplant who was drawn into education advocacy after Indiana school funding cuts of 2009. 
She has volunteered on school board campaigns in the 2010 and 2016 referendum campaigns for the Monroe County Community School Corporation. Now to all, welcome to Bring It On. And uh, we're really, really just glad that you can join us this evening to educate us and, and sort of use a pun there, to educate us on what is going on in our school uh, systems, uh, both public, private, and public. And your documentary that I did view um, tends to leave me with more questions than anything. But before we get into that, let's talk about your mission for the uh, organization that you represent, the Indiana Coalition for Public Education. So we didn't flip a coin uh, to see who goes first. So uh, I'll just, I'll leave it to our, our transplant uh, to Indiana to sort of start us off. Uh, we'll, we'll defer to you, Jenny. All right, sure. Hello, and thank you so, so much for having us here tonight. Um, yeah, absolutely. Our mission is to support a system of well-funded, equitable public schools. And we believe that system should be, it's uh, mandated in the Indiana Constitution. It should be available to each and every child, and it should provide a rich, full education. And that means not just what's tested on standardized tests, but extends to the connections our schools have with the community. And really the goal, I think, of our schools should be to uh, you know, reflect the needs of our communities, but also to um, engage our kids with people of various backgrounds, beliefs of all races, religions, so that we equip our kids to go out into the world and inter interact broadly with the world and to participate as functional citizens in a democracy. All right, uh, Dr. Harris, did she leave anything out? Well, <clears throat> not directly. I think she covered the, the reason why ICPE was formed in response to the um, choice legislation and the, <clears throat> the importance of our public education system to our democracy. And uh, Antonia, uh, would you like to, to add something else? And forgive me, I'm going to get every name correct. So Don, Tanya, do you have anything to add correct. to that? Thank you. Not really, other than um, the fact that ICPE, the state organization which I represent, and then Monroe County um, is doing some great work to ensure that every child gets an equitable education that's fully funded, um, where they are fully, um, fully funded and fully resourced. And um, I can't wait to get into, in, into the discussion to show where those disparities lie and the systematic deconstruction of public education that is happening in our state. Okay. And, um... Uh, Steve Hennefield, if you'll add a few words to what has been shared currently. The other, people, the other folks have covered it pretty well. Um, I think that um, all of us have been watching uh, sort of this trend of um, public education being um, under attack in various ways and um, uh, feeling like ideas that were once kind of fringe ideas that public, uh, public schools are, are um, uh, you know, government schools and, and that uh, pri the private uh, system could better provide education uh, and that individual choice and individual benefits should be the 
what uh, education um, focuses on. That used to be kind of a, a fringe libertarian idea. It's kind of moved into the mainstream to where uh, Indiana legislators in particular have adopted uh, a lot of what, what used to be seen as, as pretty radical ideas. And, and um, we're concerned about that. Thank you all. Thank you all for, for that introduction. And um, the documentary, well-produced, and it sort of uh, paints a picture that sort of defining the origins of the voucher program uh, to something less than honorable. Um, and that it was sort of the answer to the segregation efforts um, that, um, um, well, the desegregation efforts that, I'm sorry, that were taking place. Let's start there. The origins of the, of the voucher and the choice sort of have it, has its roots in something that all may not agree on, but why don't you share with our listening audience, um, Don, Tanya, uh, just your understanding of, of where all of this uh, emanated from. It's my understanding that vouchers are not new. Um, this whole choice movement, it, it's um, being presented as some novel idea laced in the language of equity um, for, our, for the most vulnerable students in our communities. Unfortunately, it's been around for a long time. It was the answer to the um, desegregation efforts of Brown versus Board of Education. And where, and the historians on the, on the panel can like elaborate more on the background, but um, it's, an effort nowadays, I'm gonna transport all the way to about 10 years ago, where it became really popular to talk about equity and ensuring various choices to failing schools in our communities. Because it bothers me that that language is being used to manipulate parents um, to, into choosing to leave the schools and this whole notion of the money following the child um, for other alternatives that may not be better and sometimes are often worse. Um, a worse option because they're experimental. Um, experimental schools not backed necessarily by evidence-based um, practices or research. Teachers who don't have very little experience and there's been a systematic approach. And this discussion is so complex, which is why our messaging is often lost on a lot of people because they're multi-layers from the fact that the union has been disbanded to um, disempower teachers and fighting for their education and making them the villain to help justify the movement. And, and also to schools and standardized tests and the tests being used to justify um, the need to um, have other options for parents in these communities. And in Indianapolis, what we see um, in the Indianapolis school district, Indianapolis public school district, is that there's an oversaturation of schools, um, charter schools, just an oversaturation. Um, and to the point where um, there's a community that um, they will shut down the public schools in that area, which makes the market ripe for um, these schools to come in. And using the language of equity, they systematically resegregate our schools because my argument has always been, if these schools are so much better, then why don't we have other 
students from other communities knocking on the door to get in, to choose these schools. And they're not, essentially they're um, in poor communities. Usually a school is the, um, is a social hub of a community or the anchor in a community, property values are associated with it, et cetera. However, there's a lot of investment that goes into the school with a top heavy administration. And rarely do you see the impact that a school is supposed to have on a community in the surrounding area. So there's like this oasis in a food desert, um, a housing desert, um, uh, just a community that's um, been stripped of its resources with this million dollar school with a $3 million budget and a school board that lives in other cities um, in this community. And um, to get to your original question, I feel like, you know, you can go down so many rabbit holes with this discussion, but the bottom line is it's, we are preparing these schools so that you don't have to go across town to choose my school because I'm, I'm giving you a better school in your community. So therefore you don't have to come into my community to my um, five-star school. Dr. Harris, I'd, we would love to hear um, your thoughts on sort of this historical trajectory uh, that Ms. Batts has set up for us. As, as she so well stated, there are a lot of different avenues that this conversation could take. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to remind the listeners that the reason we're where we are in this state and in our nation is that I'll use the current euphemism right now, and that is believing in the great lie that our public education system is failing. And politicians and and others have utilized test data that is without validity and reliability to make judgments about our students and our teachers and our school districts that are totally unreliable and unfounded. And building on that big lie of our failing public schools, the charter school and voucher legislation really grew out of in my opinion, the attempt to privatize public education. And so here we find ourselves really in, as, as Clarence mentioned in his opening comments, this, the concept of separate but equal that the Supreme Court has already ruled is unconstitutional. So we in the state are trying to maintain multiple school districts, a voucher system, a charter system, a public system, and then who knows what else the rest may be called. And it's simply compromising the education of all. And it's really the state's responsibility because as several of you have mentioned, Jenny mentioned it, it's written in our constitution that the state will provide the educational system. And so it's in the common good and in the best interest of the state and the nation to have the strongest public education system we can possibly envision and implement. And 
the state also, by this legislation, has <clears throat> sanctioned segregation and discrimination that was also declared illegal. So here we're dealing with conflicts. What I believe this legislation has imposed upon the citizens of the state of Indiana and all driven by the attempt to privatize the, 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 the con, the, to privatize our public education system. Jenny and, and Steve, uh, the, Tanya, I see that you have your hand raised there, please. Yes, I, I quickly wanted to interject because I think we need to define what privatization is because oftentimes those on the opposite side of the argument will say we're public schools, speaking of their charters. And then there's, there's two different arguments. There's the charter schools that are being in the, that call themselves legally well, they're legally defined as public schools by our state legislature, which are governed by a private school board, which the public does not have a voice in. But privatization, and then you also have private schools with the voucher where the public funds are paying for, private for children to attend private institutions. But privatization is not about private schools, but about the privatization of the process by which public funds that belong in the public domain are being taken away and moved into private hands via these nonprofit chartered schools. Um, charter is just a fancy word for a contract. And we have to understand that when you go behind the veil of privatization, the public voice doesn't get in. So our public dollars are going to fund institutions that um, can literally just use the law um, as a game. For instance, yes, you welcome all students in your front door because you're a private school, but when it comes down closer to testing time, um, there's an opportunity to usher them out the back door because A, maybe they have behavioral problems or maybe they're gonna lower your test scores as an aggregate, um, et cetera. There are multiple ways that I have witnessed um, charter schools push students out. So we have to really understand private, privatization is a process by which we use public fund, take the public, like if you had a fire department and they got to choose which, which fires they got to extinguish using our public dollars and, you know, and, and then call it, it's an equitable situation. It's just a very um, gen genius opportunity. And I also wanted to make one more point before you move on, I'm sorry. How do you know your school is bad or failing? Um, our production assistant stated very eloquently before the show started that he was proud of the legacy of the school public school that he went to in Gary. And, um, but the, the answer is when I, my, my freshman year of college, um, someone said that they met a black Italian and the gentleman said, I didn't, I'm not black Italian, I'm Italian. Well, you're a black Italian when someone tells you you are. Your school is failing when someone tells you your school is failing, despite the dedicated teachers that help you um, gain confidence and um, love your school and your community and the engagement that happened there. Well, someone told you in a very strategic marketing process. Yeah, you know, I have I have a sort of a counter, uh, sort of maybe an opinion that some listeners have that have their children in uh, charter schools or private schools. Um, there is there is the feeling that the public school systems have failed their children. That's in a sense why they put them in these particular schools. And are there some merits to that? Because there are some public school systems that 
I think before some of this, the, some of this legislation was launched, and and I and I look in Indiana at uh, Governor Mitch Daniels, and then followed by Governor Pence, that there was that equity was not the rule of the day. Um, I mean, you know, it's some of the books were were there since the '30s, or or technology. What technology? Um, you know, it's and then and then comes the internet age. And the internet highway, the, the the digital highway didn't land at our school, you know, and that's been some of the counter. Uh, so am I wrong to, you know, and we say the big lie, but but let's let's dissect the big lie. Uh, anyone care to respond to that? I, I would love to. I mean, I think that's, it's so important. It's a really important point that there are problems and there are uh, big inequities and disparities in our public schools. I think it's really important that we come together and face those and try to address them and improve those situations when it's lack of resources, uh, when it's disparities in discipline, um, all of those things. But I think what, what's happening, just to go back to what Don, these issues that you brought up, Don Tanya, where you can perceive uh, an actual problem. An actual problem then can be your sort of wedge into a market or into a message. Um, because just because the problem exists doesn't mean that privatization is the way to answer it. And I think one, th one thing that's important to me is to think not just of what the goals of public schools are, which is what I was thinking of before, but what is technically a definition of a public school? Because again, as, as Don Tanya was saying, um, charter schools are public schools in our, um, you know, as defined by the legislature here. And so the, the, two, the two aspects that I come back to the most are one, you know, our, our public schools have a mission and responsibility to serve all children in a community. That is, you know, if you live there, you have a right to be there. They don't get to say no. They don't get to turn you away. It doesn't matter your behavioral issues, your special education status. They are legally obligated to serve you. And then also, if you live in that community, you have a voice in your school through your public school board. So those are, to me, are those two major things. One, the obligation to serve everybody. And that doesn't, that's not out of the goodness of your heart. That is like legally required of you. And I do think then it also affects the orientation and the attitude of the professionals who are in the system because they understand that that is their obligation and they take it really seriously. Um, and then, then the second one is that is that voice in your school. So, and and the job then of a school board is a really difficult one. I mean, it is somewhat it's a democratic representation, um, but it's often negotiating different competing needs with limited resources. So it's it's a process. It's not perfect in any one moment, um, but it but it also is something that is part of a franchise. And I think this shift of funds and of energy away from our public schools then disenfranchises people. So I certainly would be the last to say, I mean, I just think that in general, people who work with children are committed and our, our you know, teachers in all kinds of schools are wonderful teachers, charter schools, private schools, people tend to be there because they have a real love of kids. So. So our, our problem as a group is not with individual schools. It's not with individual parents trying to make the best choice for their child. It's just 
we need to ask ourselves as a state and in our communities, do we want to invest in our schools that have this obligation to serve everybody and try to, you know, meet out resources, often too few resources equitably within a system, or do we want to send that money out of the public realm where the public doesn't have a voice and um, to schools that really might just have an obligation only to the people who get to be in them, you know, to maximize that experience only for the people who are there. So, I, I mean, I think that's in some ways the, you know, the choice that we have. If you've just tuned in, we're having a conversation with four individuals who are really uh, staking a claim here tonight. You just heard from Jenny Robinson. Also joining us are Dontanya Batts, uh, Dr. Philip Harris, and Steve Hennefeld. And these individuals are part of the Indiana Coalition for Public Education, Monroe County. Is it Monroe County branch or just Monroe County? Oh, we'll get that answered in a little second. Um, but nevertheless, um, we are also looking at a documentary that was put together called um, Indiana Choice. Uh, uh, Steve, you had your hand up earlier. You, you, were, you were biting at the chomp to comment. So I'm gonna turn it over to you, to you and then we're gonna turn things over to Roberta. A lot of what I wanted to say and said it much better than I would have, but I kind of wanted to go back to Roberta's question about, about the history of, of, um, of um, school vouchers. And, and um, you know, we, we make the argument in, in the documentary that, and I think this, it's not just us, this is pretty widely made argument by scholars that the kind of the beginnings of the idea of school vouchers goes back to what were called segregation academies which were opened in the South um, in response to Brown v. Board of Education and by people, by white uh, policymakers, public officials who didn't want their schools to be racially integrated. Um, they, in some cases, shut down the public schools. In some cases, then gave tax dollars to private academies that admitted only white students or at least controlled their admission in some cases it was not all white. In some cases, uh, they admitted some black students, but they were able to selectively admit students. And, um, you know, that, that was eventually found, the racial discrimination part of it was eventually found to be unconstitutional. Uh, but more recently, what's this new wave of vouchers that started in 2011 in Indiana uh, has a lot of similarities in that these schools are getting public funds or private schools, and they're able to exclude certain students. They can't ex exclude students on the basis of race. That's part of the law. The law says that. Um, but they can and they do exclude students on the basis of uh, religion, uh, on the basis of disability, uh, on the basis of test scores, uh, on the basis of sexual orientation, on the basis of gender identity. And so, uh, you know, those are, are, are things, categories that are largely protected in many aspects of the law, but, but not in admission to schools. And they can also discriminate against employees. And uh, I think one of the strongest parts in the, in the documentary is, is uh, where two uh, counselors from a Catholic high school in Indianapolis talk about uh, being fired once it was uh, learned that they were in same-sex uh, marriages. Or relationships and and um, so you know I think we're seeing the same kind of discrimination that um, 50 years ago, 60 years ago we we thought was offensive, um, and I think many of us find it offensive now. Tanya, I see that you've got 
something to say. So please, the floor is yours. Yes, I'm sorry. It'll be really quick. No, please. To go back to um, the question about let's not pretend that public schools have served all students well. That is a fact. And one of the court cases that consumed me when I was in law school was San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez, which was a 1973 Supreme Court case that held that San Antonio Independent Schools financing system, which was based on local property taxes, was not unconstitutional. Um, based on the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And this was about funding schools based on property taxes. The failure of some schools in certain areas is by design. You've got redlining, and then you're funding those schools based on property taxes. And therefore, if you're in a poor community, you're gonna get a smaller pot of that of those funds. Now, Indiana has some complex funding formula and Steve can evaluate you know, because we no longer do it solely on property taxes, whatever. I don't know. I don't understand all that. But the bottom line is the failure of certain schools in certain areas is by design. And it has it stems back to the whole segregation um, argument, even though we laced it in equal protection and equity and all this other kind of stuff. It is by design. But what fascinates me, I come from a long history of Mississippi educators that in spite of those disparities, that there are students who still succeeded, even with 1930 books, NASA scientists, et cetera, poor engagement with their parents, with school parent engagement because of, um, you know, because they had to work multiple jobs or for whatever reason. Um, it just amazes me that our students are still resilient, but it doesn't excuse the fact that there have been inequities by design. And now we have a different kind of inequity that's being perpetuated in our state. My mind is firing off in a million different directions. Um, I have an adult who, uh, an adult child that I insisted um, go through public education because I worked in the city, in the metropolitan area of wherever I was working. And so I wanted my child to be a contributing member of that community. So I'm very, very, very pro public education. But I also have to ask that question um, and not to really completely revisit where Clarence went um, earlier, um, but to ask us to think about what the implication is on curriculum. Um, I think charter schools have a perception that they are um, can deploy or employ uh, stricter uh, behavioral models um, that's appealing, I think, to some parents who perceive or understand that their child needs to be able to conform and socialize in a certain way in order to access cultural capital, to access um, a world where they can um, enter in, so to speak, the opportunities that are available to them. So. I'm thinking of, you know, Ron Clark's school uh, <laughs> that it gets a lot of a lot of attention in the public sphere about sort of the um, the, uh, you know, the celebration of what's possible when you step out of an antiquated quote unquote, I got air quotes up here, an antiquated public school model and into something more innovative. So 
while I'm trying to complicate this idea of the, the, the lie that we talked about a little bit earlier, I do want to complicate also um, that parents who don't always have the skills and the tools to advocate for their children, they're expecting the professionals at the schools to do that advocating for their students, that charter schools sometimes have uh, an, an appeal, both in terms of how uh, restrictive they can be or how innovative they are, um, how they deal with behavior, what's going to be tolerated and what's not gonna be tolerated, how, how how does an organization like your organization educate parents that it's actually parents who are to be sort of the gap fillers in a way that sometimes we as community members, us as parents, expect schools to be doing that work? How do we bring it back? And then if we bring it back to families, bring it back to parents, how, how does that shift the conversation around the perception that charter schools are the end all be all? You know, it's such a it's such a good question. And I, I think there's the thing that I come back to is there's just there's a difference between there's a difference between marketing and reality. And I say that not meaning to dismiss the fact that there can be school charter schools that are wonderful, that have great innovative things going on in them. But it's also true that our public schools have the same. Something that really matters to me as a parent is the qualifications and the experience of my kids' teachers. And, um, and the, the fact is schools that are, that, where the teachers are in a union, those and they have a certain expectation of stability, they are much more likely to have that kind of experience and the kind of knowledge that comes with experience. So um, in terms of innovation, I mean, I think like locally we have, um, you know, we have a school that has a special STEM focus. We have schools that have gardens. We have schools locally, you know, public schools that are actually a couple that are doing Spanish immersion. So those are all exciting things going on. I know my kids benefit just greatly from the music, just the incredible music that we have in our public schools. My son's an orchestra and oh my, he, he loves it. He loves his orchestra teacher, you know, who's been doing it for, he looks so young, but I think he's been a teacher for at least 20 years, you know, and the enthusiasm and knowledge that he brings is just amazing. So there are just, we just have all of these people in our public schools with this tremendous knowledge and who are hitting it out of the park for our kids every single day. So I, and I know also amazing things going in charter schools, but, but our schools don't, our public schools historically have not needed a marketing budget. Suddenly in this atmosphere of choice, you need a marketing budget, you know, and, and charter schools certainly do. And especially, especially the ones that have, that are run by for-profit. So that's one kind of, th one possible arrangement is technically you have your nonprofit that's running, running the school, but you've actually outsourced that to 
an education management associate uh, organization. And that might be a much larger entity that does have a big advertising budget. But if you go down, if you sort of drill down to that point, you look at, well, what is the experience of the teachers in the school? It might be that most, like that half of those teachers or that 75% of those teachers have only come there in the last three years. So you can have great photos, you can have, uh, um, or you know, or you can have the opposite. I mean, in some in certain cases, you can have people who've been there for fifteen or who've been educators for fifteen or twenty years. But um, but yeah, I guess I would just say that there's a lot of innovation going on in our in our public schools too. I think. I want to uh, uh, sort of continue along the line of oversight uh, and just accountability. You you hinted something about the unions, uh, the presence or lack of a presence of unions. Your organization has uh, asserted that charter schools are overseen by distant entities uh, who often have their own agenda. And then also along that same line, charter schools appoint their own boards so they are not accountable through a publicly elected board, furthering their lack of public oversight. Would anyone care to uh, comment on those two points? Dr. It, Harrison? You're all, it's all true that um, what Jenny has made ver re referred to, what Steve and what Don Antonio have referred to, really points out that these charter schools and private schools are not accountable to the public that are that are providing them funds. And and I'd like to just get into the heart of this matter, an issue. I don't know if we want to talk about it or not. I'll find out, but. Clarence, I think you I think you have a perfect right to choose the kind of education you want for your children, but don't ask me to pay for it. Okay? You can choose whatever education you want, but I'm willing to put money into a pot to provide a quality education. If you want something else, go for it. But don't ask me to put the money into your faith base or particular private school interest that you see, whether it's a, a particular curriculum that may not be in the best interest of the public good, or whether or not it provides all the things the public schools are required by law, music education, physical education, art education, civics education is going to come back and bite us again. So there are things that are <clears throat> that are embedded in this accountability that we have to kind of peel back the layers that are a part of this whole concept and <clears throat> really try to figure out what is it that we want as a purpose of our public education system. We haven't had that discussion in 200 years. And as a state and as a citizen, we need to sit down together and say, why do we need a public education system in our state? What do we want it to accomplish for our future citizens? And those kinds of discussions are being overpowered by whether or not I'm willing to pay for your child's education. <clears throat> I'll let, let some of the others respond. Thank you, Dr. Harris. Jenny? 
Yeah, you know, I think it's it's just a fascinating question, this question of accountability, because at first we were told that charters were going to be especially accountable, and the way they were going to show their accountability was that they would be closed. So that if they didn't meet certain test score improvement benchmarks, then the state would come along or their authorizer would come along and close them. And, you know, when you sort of back up from that and think about it, that is a weird definition of accountability because to close a school is to disrupt a community for children. And that's whether that's true, whether it's a public school or charter school. Um, so I, I'm not a fan of that kind of, well, we're going to wait and see how you, your test scores are and then we'll close you down because because really if if a school is worth being there it's worth it needs to be supported and if it's if it's not doing well then i would say additional supports need to be brought in but just the question of governance is is tricky and we've seen it locally so here in monroe county we have two brick and mortar charter schools uh, students in Monroe County also attend several um, on, online schools, um, even before the pandemic. Uh, but but there's two schools here. One is authorized by Ball State, and the other is authorized by Grace College. And Ball State is a couple hours away. Grace College is several hours away. Um, and so so that it you know we didn't get to make that choice here whether like the people of this community were not the ones to decide whether those charters could go forward. And the tricky moment is always when a charter opens up or when a charter expands, then at some point you reach an equilibrium and things feel okay again. But it's that the loss of students, because you just have your finite set of students and so when you open up a new school, you may open up opportunities for a number of children who want that kind, whatever's being offered in that school. But at the same time, you're reducing opportunities for those who are not in it. Um, and they could end up losing a certain art program. They could use, I mean, really our public schools are pretty lean, I would say. A, mo a lot of the funding is going toward paying teachers. And so if you open up a new school and it takes a certain number of, you know, hundreds of thousands or a couple million dollars to do that, that represents a direct loss from your public school system. So there is a cost. So I think anytime there's a cost like that, the, the right thing to do would be to negotiate that in the community. Like, is this the right thing to do? Do we need to create this new opportunity? And how are we going to allocate the costs of that? But we've found, you know, like locally, it wasn't up to us. It was up to these entities that are, you know, the people making the decision don't, don't live here in our county. Uh, Steve, I saw your hand a, lot, a few moments ago. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think it's... Uh... You know, as Jenny suggested, there's, there's really a spectrum of, of uh, school choices and school choice systems that we're looking at here. And um, in Indiana, um, I would say to Indiana's credit, uh, charter schools are subject to some of the uh, kind of checks uh, and accountability that, that uh, we see um, as part of public education. Uh, they're subject to the open door law, their school boards, have to have public meetings. Their meetings, when they do meet, have to be public. Um, they don't necessarily have to meet a whole lot, I don't think. Uh, their record, they're subject, subject to the same, more or less the same public records law um, laws that, that public schools are. Um, 
information about their teachers is is uh, you can get and so on and that that sort of thing. Um, and they are um, you know authorized by institutions now. At the time the Monroe County School was authorized, there was no uh, you know public involvement with the decision by Grace College to authorize a charter school in, in Monroe County. But uh, now there is an expectation that authorizers have a public meeting, have public hearings, and so on like that before they authorize the school, but they're not accountable in the same way. Um, but charter schools that are authorized by the city of Indianapolis, the mayor of Indianapolis is elected, but people are, when they vote for the mayor, are typically not thinking about which, uh, what's his, um, his or her approach gonna be to uh, authorizing charter schools. They're thinking about a lot of other things, uh, public safety and potholes and everything else. Um, you know, Ball State is not is a public institution, but it's not subject to the same kind of public over oversight that your local school board would would be. And um, you know, this this whole question of schools closing that what Jenny said is really really true. And I think Dantania might might be able to address the the effects of, of closing schools uh, better than any of us. Yes, um, you guys brought up some really good points. I used to be a charter school teacher. And I experienced the trauma of what a school closing can do to a community, to students, and to the teachers. Um, it is a very traumatic experience. I, the school I was at um, essentially closed. Um, you know, you go to school normally one day, and the CEO is there for some apparent reason, and um, he announced that the school was closing. No forewarning. No nothing. And um, that was the only high school at the time in that community because the public schools had closed in that area. So students would in, essentially have to provide their own transportation if they chose another private school. Often these students were students who had um, maybe been expelled from the one um, public school system, you know, the township's public systems. Um, IPS was sandwiched in between two township schools, Indianapolis has 11 school districts with IPS being in the center. And so, um, and then children who chose another charter school, um, some of them two days before school started, got a notice that that school was also closing. So you experienced two school closings in a matter of three months, um, at one at the end of a school year and one before a school year even began. But I wanna get back to the original question too, because our state and um, reformers at large have done a really good job of demonizing the union and also perpetuating this idea of a teacher shortage and also have allowed for this, um, I love how people like to talk about nonprofits, but it's a nonprofit. Nonprofits are just businesses that are governed by a board. Um, the only difference is their money is not, when they're raising money, they're raising for the mission of that particular business, whereas a for-profit entity is, um, you know, run by its owners. And the definition is to make money for its shareholders. And so they're essentially businesses with a different governing structure and the purposes of how money is made and what it's used for. But um, when, when, when the, you, there's this institution called um, that has a, um, a private entity that gets to take people from different areas of um, industry and um, train them over the summer for about three to six months or however long the program is and then certify them as teachers. 
where they're competing for jobs along teachers who have gone through an education process, understand pedagogy and understand the intricacies of how to teach um, and the um, burdens that are put on teachers, um, such as the more demand on reporting and connecting test scores to their um, performance and evaluations to justify getting rid of a teacher so that um, there's this um, teacher shortage that has been manufactured. And then you supply that teacher shortage with TF, I'm sorry, with um, institutions that train teachers um, in a short amount of time and certify them. And we taught, um, Jenny brought up stability in the charter school that I worked at. Um, in less than a semester, we, we overturned 20 teachers in one semester. Every time I would take a day off, um, students would say, Miss Betts, I thought you were not going to come back. I just took a break. <laughs> you know, I took a PTO day. But the, the um, instability that we put children through who are already in unstable conditions, maybe at home, is unconscionable. And I cannot believe that this is state endorsed, this whole process. We talk about, we care about trauma and we care about equity, but yet we're forcing our children, the most vulnerable of children into situations that they can't control, that sometimes parents don't have the resources or the ability to research on their own. And then we, and then I'm gonna say something controversial and it's very um, difficult for me to reconcile sometimes. But it's a fact and um, it is something that is being used to exploit um, people of color. And that is um, promoting teachers who have very little administrative background, giving them a fellowship, incubating a school for a year, and then um, essentially putting this incubation, incubated school on paper into a school, giving them a charter, and then um, saying that they deserve equitable treatment with the school funding process. So unresearched um, or untested curriculum are being put into schools to replace our traditional public schools um, that have existed and some have done well, et cetera. But it just, we're, we're give, maybe giving people of color an opportunity that may have taken years to accomplish as compared to a, a year, one year, and you're making, you know, maybe five or six times as a um, two year teaching professional, and now you're making six figures and running your own school in a community that, um, you know, um, has been um, robbed of its resources to justify the need for a new school. And then the, the narrative that's being perpetuated is people of color teaching other people of color and we need this, which is true, but I, I have difficulty reconciling the fact that if we truly envision a world where people are unified and we're learning to, to walk hand in hand and fulfilling the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King, where, do, where does segregation fit in that? Because in essence, that is exactly what we're creating. Segregated schools in segregated communities to further justify that we need to have equitable solutions. And one more point before I pass the mic, but if you compare these better schools that have been replacing our traditional public schools to the curriculum in um, high-performing um, traditional public schools, they don't compare. They don't compete and they are not equitable. So, and the argument that I've heard is, but we're meeting students where they are, which is less than 
other traditional public schools that are really performing well. So just to, is it okay if I follow up? Jenny, let's go ahead and transition. We are, we're about to wrap up here and I'll let you go first. In the next 30 to 45 seconds or so for each, for each person here, please share your final thoughts. So Jenny, that'll give you a chance to chime in there. But what we also want to know is what's your, what should the Indiana, what should our public, our listeners be expecting or hoping that can be accomplished from the Indiana Coalition for Public Education? What's your wish list? What needs to be getting done in the next five years, 10 years, so that we are moving into the 21st century with public education firmly on the agenda of public discourse? Jenny, you can start. Okay, that's that's a big, that's a big question. Um, I, I would say, please, if you don't already get to know your local public school, whether you volunteer in it, talk to a teacher in it, um, talk to your neighbors about the value of it, please consider joining our coalition. We're at keepeducationpublic.org here in Monroe County, or you could join the statewide coalition if you're outside of Monroe County. Um, and then the important thing is uh, talk to your talk to your legislature. We've seen since about 2011 a billion dollars go to um, private schools through vouchers. About 1.8 billion dollars go into charter schools. 450 million dollars since 2011 go into virtual charter schools. And we know that at least 68 to 85 million of that was just fraudulently absconded with. with uh, no um, return and no no punishment as of yet. So, um, yeah, I would just say talk to your legislator and get get to know your local public schools if you don't already. Dr. Harris, if you'll uh, have yeah. a thirty okay. second wrap up. Now, I've got three three quick points. I'll try to make that. The first is I'd like to see our public education system taken out of the political process. Our education system isn't driven by whether you're Democrat or Republican or independent or libertarian. Uh, secondly, we need a generally accepted purpose of our public education system that's articulated at the state level, drawn from the residents of the state. And we really need to define learning by something other than the number that we get from a test score. And uh, Steve? I think that, um, you know, what Phil says about uh, education not being a democratic or Republican issue, uh, you know, historically that's been the case. And there's been a lot of very bipartisan support for public schools at the state house. And that's really changed. Um, you know, we've really reached a point where, where it's uh, supporting public schools, traditional public schools, considered almost a partisan uh, issue. And, and I think that uh, like Jenny said, if, if legislators hear from their constituents in their local communities, not from ICPE necessarily, but from people whose kids go to the local school and, you know, in, in uh, Seymour or uh, Martinsville or, or Crawfordsville or wherever, um, I think that has some influence on, on positions educators take. And then in terms of what I'd like to see, I would really like to see uh, citizens become much more involved in understanding of their local public schools. Um, and, um, you know, those, there are a lot of really important decisions are made at the local level and people tend to overlook that. They think it's somebody else's business. It's all of our business. It's not just the business of parents. Uh, it's, it's everyone's business, how schools operate. 
And then finally, uh, Dantanya. Um, I would like to see us get beyond the rhetoric of equity language and really start um, putting um, our money where our mouth is. Um, that's equity and resources, fully funded um, public education, where every child has an opportunity to um, gain a quality education. And that's another term that needs to be defined, which is quality. And then also, um, I believe that our country and our state is in dire need of getting to know the people across the street from you or across town or in another city. And our public schools have been um, a wonderful opportunity for people of different socioeconomic um, persuasions, different um, lifestyles and different ways of thinking, religion, etc. have had an opportunity to learn from one another and show, see that we have more in common then we have that's different. And that's what makes us strong. While we're very different, um, we're more powerful as a collective and the well-being of our country and our democracy depends on a educated populace in order to make sure that it, it survives. We wanna thank Antonia Batts, Dr. Philip Harris, Steve Hennefield, and Jenny Robinson for joining us this evening to discuss the mission of Indiana Coalition for Public Education, the Monroe County, the Monroe County chapter, and the Indiana Choice documentary that was recently released. And of course, this time has sort of uh, uh, just escaped us. We'll have to have you all back again. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff or if you want additional information about tonight's guests, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. If you have an event or a happening the African-American community would like to know about, please definitely share it with the Bring It On staff at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is William Hosea. Our consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Cade Young, our program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine, and our original theme music was created by Jamil Lefiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I am Roberta Radovich. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.